You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Dylan Javeri, who is running Phoenix and Elixir to power the API behind Mux.com, which is a video encoding and streaming service. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Nice to be on. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what Mux does? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'm Dylan Javeri. I've been uh, working at Mux for about nine months, a little more than that, almost a year. And Mux is APIs for video. So we are sort of the way you think of using Stripe to do payments, or you think of Twilio when you need to do uh, you know, text messages and stuff like that. Mux is sort of like the developer-friendly API when you need to do video. And our public-facing API, uh, we use Phoenix and Elixir to run that. And we have a lot of other technology we use that to do video video encoding, video transcoding, and stuff like that. So um, I'm happy to talk about all of it. Okay, cool. So if I'm a developer and I'm setting up my own like video streaming service or whatever, I just provide you guys like an MP4 of my video, and then you guys convert that over into, I guess, what, multiple different encodings, like 1080p, 720p, things like that, and also handle the streaming? Yeah, exactly. So um, there's a couple different products that Mux has, and this one you're describing is what we call Mux Video. And the way Mux Video works is exactly that. You have MP4 files or really video with any kind of file, any kind of common video file format, and you make a request to our, to our video API, and we will uh, ingest that video. And the way playback works, and it's sort of like the standard way of doing video playback over the internet, is with a technology called HLS. Um, you you might be familiar with HLS, maybe not. Um, I'll kind of explain how it works. And the way HLS works is it's an adaptive bitrate streaming technology. So we take that MP4 file, and let's say you have a one-hour-long MP4 file, and we'll Break, break up that one file into segments that are, you know, usually with HLS, you'll go between four and 10 second segments. So say we take that hour long video, we break it up into a bunch of different files with six, six second segments. And um, each of those segments will, will uh, transcode into different quality levels. So we, w- for each single segment, we'll maybe have four or five versions of that, of that segment at different, different bitrate levels. Um, so exactly, you can go a 1080p, a 720p, steps below that, and um, and then what the way HLS works is um, you provide what's called a manifest file, and um, a manifest file it, it ends in like .m3u8, and this is a very kind of standard protocol for for streaming video over the internet, and you take that m3u8 file and you put it into a player, so that could be a player that's running in a web browser, that can be a player that's on iOS, that can be a player that's on Android or on a Roku Roku box or Apple TV. You just drop that HLS URL into a player. So that's like a, for with Mux, that would look like stream.mux.com slash the ID for your playback and .m3u8. And you just drop that into a player. And then what happens is the player makes a request to that m3u8 file and it gets a um, that's called the like master manifest, and the the master manifest file file is just going to be a list. It's going to be like a kind of a, a small file, just kind of a text file 
with a list and it's going to have URLs to each of the rendition manifest files. So if we made five different kind of quality levels, which we call renditions, so if we made five different renditions of your video, then there'll be a URL for the, you know, the highest rendition, a URL for the second highest, URL for the third highest, the fourth highest, and then a URL for the, the lowest quality level. And so then the player knows, it, it's, it knows what URLs to get each kind of quality level for. And then um, when you look at the, and then when, you, when the player requests the URL for a specific rendition playlist, then it gets a, a really long file that has more URLs and those, those URLs point to um, TS files. And the TS files are like the specific video segments. It's sort of like a, you know, you can think of that as like part of an MP4. And the, each of those TS files in our example is like six seconds long. So, you know, for an hour long video, um, you're going to have a, a pretty long list, you know, of, of links to just six second segments of files. And the, what the player does and how the HLS streaming technology works, what the player does is it will, it'll sort of, uh, it'll start downloading segments of video. So um, it'll, it'll use different logic to kind of figure out how much, bandwidth you have available on your client so you know if you're sitting at home on your couch watching on your on your kind of big screen tv and you have like a, a really good home you know network connection it's it's going to kind of it'll just it'll just start downloading the segments for the for the highest rendition rendition file and you know it downloads the first segment downloads the second segment downloads the third segment and it'll just start start playing back that video so you, you start seeing the first segment of video it's like the first six seconds of the video you start then you see the next six seconds and as you're watching the video the player is constantly downloading new segments in the background so that's kind of how it works and uh, what's cool is that and what makes it the adaptive bitrate streaming is that as your um, bandwidth might fluctuate as you're watching the video the player will actually kind of adapt in real time and it'll It'll, you know, if if you your bandwidth starts to go down, it'll start it'll start going down to the lower rendition and downloading segments from the lower rendition files. And then if your bandwidth gets better, then it'll kind of ratchet back up and start going back to the to the high resolution renditions. And um, you, you might you might have seen this, you know, if you're if you're watching YouTube videos or you're watching Netflix and you know you're watching on your phone and you're on some kind of mobile network and you're moving around. Sometimes it's very obvious where you can see like. You know the video doesn't stop playing. You, you're still able to watch the video, but it'll just adapt and it will start streaming the different the different quality levels based on your bandwidth. So that's kind of it's really kind of in one way it's a really simple technology. And what makes HLS really cool is everything is over HTTP. So you don't require a con a constant kind of open connection open connection between the player and the server. Um, the player is just kind of constantly making HTTP requests to get manifest files and to get specific segment files of video. And that makes, that means you can sort of, you can cache those segments over, over CDNs pretty easily because, you know, once you create a segment of video at a specific rendition, it doesn't change. And it's sort of a HTTP protocol, just a, something that, you know, normal CDNs that we're used to using can understand. And you can just kind of cache that stuff. And that, that's kind of what makes it cost-effective and um, kind of just a really effective uh, technology for streaming video. Nice. 
Yeah, that's pretty much the best explanation of that I've ever heard. Like as soon as you were talking, I was thinking like, ah, so when I'm watching Netflix and things get blocky, it must be because of that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's what Mux gives you, where if you're going to build all that video infrastructure yourself, it kind of takes a whole video engineering team. And where with Mux, you can just kind of post your video to, to Mux's API. We give you back a, a, play, a playback URL that's HLS, and you can just drop that into your players and, and start getting that sort of like Netflix level or YouTube level quality of streaming um, for your own projects. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes total sense. So how long has been Mux uh, running in production for? Yeah, cool. So Mux is about four years old. Uh, it was started yeah j- around January 2016. Uh, they went through Y Combinator, and um, we can kind of get into a whole nother side of Mux. Um, what what we just talked about was Mux Video, and that's kind of like the most you know consumer facing product where you know you're kind of everyday developer that's dealing with video would just kind of drop in and use. But Mux Video is only about a year and a half old or so. There's Kind of the way Mux started in, back in 2016 was with a product called Mux Data, and this is actually like a super interesting product that I think I think your audience will will find really interesting. Um, and so I can kind of talk about that a little bit. The way Mux Data is actually a product that's built for video engineering teams and for media companies that have video engineering teams. So you can imagine if you are a company where you have, you know, a whole team of video engineers, you, you know, maybe you license content, maybe you produce your own content and you stream your, your content over the internet. What Mux Data is, is it's sort of like New Relic for your video infrastructure. Um, most, most developers are probably familiar with New Relic um, or, you know, something like Google Analytics. So what Mux Data does is it plugs in, it's an SDK that plugs in to your video player um, so you would just install Mux's SDK into your your iOS app player or your Apple TV app player or your your player that's on the web, and Mux Data is constantly running and monitoring the playback experience, and it's constantly sending data to Mux's backend to collect information about how the viewing experience is going for your users. So this becomes really important for a video engineering team. They 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 need to know how much what's the startup time from when a user pushes play to when they see the first frame of the video. Like they, that, that's like a key metric that they have to track and know are users having a good time streaming. How, how is the startup time in Australia compared to the startup time in New York? You know, you might see a big difference there and then you know you need to work on your delivery to Australia. You can see things like rebuffering percentage. You can, so you can see when you push play on a video and everyone's familiar with getting a rebuffering. So that's when the video is playing, it stops. You see a spinner while more videos loading and you're just kind of sitting there twiddling your thumbs bored and then the video starts playing again or maybe you you exit before it starts playing again so um, these are all all the sort of like quality we call it quality of service so these are all the kind of quality of service metrics that mux data tracks in real time and you get a real-time dashboard where you can see all this data about the quality of your service like the quality of how the, your end users experience and how it's going for them. Um, you can see historical data. You can kind of see, okay, users on iOS 12 in our, in our old version of the app in Australia, they're getting this crazy rebuffing percentage, you know, and we need to go patch that bug or something like that. So, so, so video engineering teams use Mux data to sort of run their video infrastructure. And so Mux data, the reason I say it's kind of, 
different compared to Mux Video is Mux Data is more targeted at like enterprise companies, media companies that are running all, running a bunch of all their video infrastructure, and they you know need need a way to monitor that. And Mux Data is like a really big product. We do you know billions of views per month that we're processing that we're processing for customers. And that was kind of the first product that much Mux launched with. Did that. So that, that, that product did really well. We still, you know, we're still constantly evolving that product. And then about a year and a half ago is when we launched Mux video. And that was to say, okay, you know, if, if you're not, if you don't have a video engineering team and you want to put video into your application or your product, that's how you can, you, you use Mux video to do that. Okay. Yeah. That totally interests me as someone who does create videos. Like I have uh, video courses that I create and it sounds like I could technically use Mux as like an alternative to Vimeo or Wistia or something like that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, the, the, you know, those services are great. The The thing is when you put a, when you put a video on, on Wistia or you put a video on Vimeo, usually what you have to do is you, you're kind of locked into using their player. So you, you kind of need to embed, embed the player that comes with that service and, so Mux is sort of like a layer, a layer before that, where we're just the video infrastructure. You can kind of, you know, our customers are developers, where they like to kind of write code and control the whole UI, control the whole look, look and feel and experience, and they want they they can kind of, you know, you, there's open source players out there. You can build your own player. There's you know players you can license, so you can kind of control the player side of it. And Mux is strictly just kind of the infrastructure in the background. Okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. And actually, I was uh, playing around a little bit with Phoenix Live View. And I was realizing when I tried to embed a video through YouTube or Vimeo or something like that, they all use iframes. And there's an interesting characteristic behind iframes in that if their position in the DOM changes at any point in time, then the iframe is going to get reloaded. Mm -hmm. So it made it very hard to create a UI experience where you can just kind of like click through maybe like tabs below a video and still have the video continuously play uh, using Live View. So interesting things yeah i i have played played around with live view a bit it's pretty cool um i i've done some cool kind of just little test projects with live view and doesn't surprise me that 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 you run into that with iframes yeah but now on the flip side you know using your service if i had my own custom video player then i wouldn't need to use an iframe so theoretically things would just work out of the box that would be pretty sweet right you can just use the you know normal kind of html5 video element plus a little little javascript to get the hls to work and that's all you need Yep. So you mentioned like, uh, you know, like a video infrastructure team, like how many people are actually working on this Mux project? Yeah. So the whole company's uh, about 45 people. Um, when I joined last summer, it was about half of that. So we've, we've kind of, we've kind of been going through a growth phase and about half of the team of the whole, co so the whole company is about 45, about half the team is, um, you know, in some way on the working on engineering. Nice. Yeah. That's a pretty high percentage. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned using Phoenix and Elixir. Uh, do you want to get into that? Like, what was your motivation for choosing that tech stack? Because if this started like four-ish years ago, um, you know, Phoenix and Elixir were pretty new back then. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we started with kind of, as to my knowledge, it's like in the Phoenix 1.0 Phoenix probably at that, at that point in time. And yeah, it, I think it ended, up serve, it ended up serving us very well from, from as, as much as I know, you know, because I wasn't there at the time, but as much as I know, it was sort of, no one on the that founding team had any like extensive experience or really much experience at all with Phoenix or Elixir. I, it was uh, our team, our, our engineering team, kind of across the board is all like kind of very experienced, kind of like senior level engineering and engineers. So kind of worked with a lot of technologies, kind of 
familiar with a lot of different web web technologies kind of across the board and they kind of chose phoenix elixir because kind of it was kind of the in a way it was kind of like the new kind of hot thing with a lot of promise that had like looked really cool and looked like it would be look like it would be fun to use and in a way it's kind of still that i mean it's definitely gotten a lot of a lot of traction it's become it's kind of i think the community has grown a lot in the past in the past couple years um so and at the so at the time the choice was sort of just because you know looked cool seemed like this is this this seems like has the characteristics to be good to use for an api and i think that that has kind of fulfilled fulfilled itself to be very very kind of true i think that the team in general is really happy with using elixir for powering our api um, in terms of dealing with a lot of concurrency, being able to handle a, a bunch of requests, you know, all, all at the same time, being able to scale it up and down. Our main sort of API is, you know, main public-facing API and our, our main kind of database that, that you know, we save, save things like like users and and all, all the information around, or like kind of around the app is all, you know, it's kind of just an out-of-the-box Phoenix app. And now it, everything's been upgraded to kind of like modern and then like the latest latest upgrades for that stack and in terms of like writing tests it kind of has has everything everything in the box for having like a good testing framework and things like that so um yeah it served us it served us really well um so far yeah that's great to hear now i know phoenix 1.5 did just come out uh is your code base updated for that or no no i don't think i don't think we're on 1.5 yet but yeah we we will be soon we're we're pretty good about staying up to date yeah. Yeah. And what you said about the testing and all that, like that's one of my favorite experiences of Elixir and Phoenix, like the end to end experience to develop an app and then you throw in some Ecto in there. It's like, it's really well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, we're, we're pretty happy with it. The other thing we really make use of, uh, I mentioned that we have with our data product, we have a way where you can see all your views coming in, in real time is we have like a very kind of feature rich real time dashboard. And so the other thing that has really come in handy with Phoenix and Elixir is using the sort of primitives that Phoenix gives you for sockets and channels and doing and pushing down updates to the client over web sockets and things like that. So do you have some examples of maybe where you're using that in your app now, like specific little widgets or whatever? Yeah, we have, uh, we have, yeah, we have a bunch. I mean, um, so we have ways in the dashboard where you can just kind of click a button, put a URL to an asset. Uh, we call it an asset, put a URL to a video file. So let's say you have an MP4 that's on S3, right? Um, you click a button and it, it'll it'll sort of give you a, a, a view that's like a JSON, JSON editor, right? Like a kind of like a code editor field which is to, to edit the JSON of the request. And you could sort of, so you can kind of look at our docs, see what, what, what parameters you could include when you're, when you're posting a video to our API. You just drop in the MP4 URL, add some other parameters if you want. Like we support things like watermarking. So if you wanted to add a watermark to your image, you could just put a put a URL to to an image file and then pass some parameters telling us how to position that image onto the video. Um, you can do things like pass in captions and subtitles files if you want to do that. So we we have this kind of editor right where you can click a button and that'll just make a request to our API, and then. You'll say, "Okay, cool. You you've just created an asset in our API. Click a button, and then you've, you're viewing the asset page. And you can imagine that's gonna that kicks off a lot of things that happen asynchronously. So, 
you know, we do a lot around sending webhooks, you know, to your backend and everything like that. So, so that, that asset page, when you, when you first create an asset and just click that, you're land, you're on this sort of landing page for the asset after you just made a request to the API. And then we push, we push updates to that page over WebSockets so that you can see, um, when the asset becomes ready, when, and then we'll show a little player so you can, you can view your, your video right there, right there on the web page. Um, that's sort of, that's sort of one way we're using WebSockets. And the other thing is what I mentioned with the real-time dashboard. So it's sort of like a very half a dozen graphs and charts that are all updating in real time as new data becomes available. And we have customers that are using that to monitor like millions of views that are happening concurrently um, on their, on their video platforms. Wow. Yeah. Millions of concurrent views is, is no joke at all. That's a lot of traffic. Yes. Yeah. So do you think at some point in the future you may, I don't know if, if the right term is like upgrade, but maybe like switch to using live view for some of the stuff or no? Probably not. Um, I, I mean, I played around with live view, made some test projects and, and I think it's really cool. Probably not because the way that we've done our dashboard, we call it dashboard client. It's a React and TypeScript app. It's kind of like pretty, pretty, you know, client heavy. And we we built the dashboard client using the public APIs that are available to the users. So that's that's sort of one way we we kind of you know make sure that we're building UI UIs that are are building APIs that are useful for our customers. Is that we're we're using those APIs literally to like build the dashboard and to to build the the dashboard that you see when you log into Mux. And so you you can kind of all those APIs that we're using to show you when you're logged in, you can you can use those same APIs in your in your products. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it's very similar, I guess, to how Stripe works, where they use their own API to power their own dashboard. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Yeah, that's really cool. So you mentioned doing a whole bunch of stuff asynchronously. Uh, are you using basically built-in language features to Elixir, or are you using any type of third-party library like Obin or something else? Yeah, so most of, yeah, and kind of go into this, so the the entry point to our api is elixir right um but the whole kind of video processing pipeline and everything like that that's more of a microservices infrastructure if you want to kind of use the buzzword so we have about a dozen or so microservices you can call them that 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 kind of run the video infrastructure so when you make a request to our api you with an mp4 file we're going to you know save a record in the database and then and then push something into a queue where most of the queuing we use is is kafka so we usually push something into a to a kafka queue and then we have different services most of the video services are all written in go so they're they have like go services that are that are running that'll pull pull jobs off the queue and kind of pro- process things and do, do the kind of video processing side of things and and then you know, when as things are updated, it'll post things back back to the API to to so that we can send webhooks and things like that. So not everything happens in Elixir. Elixir is really only uh, so it's kind of just like the entry point to everything, and it's kind of like the main main application database. But all the sort of like video infrastructure stuff that's a bunch of like Go services that are running running separately from the Elixir app. Oh, okay, and I, I guess that makes sense, right? Like I'm not really. I, I don't know the deep inner workings of video transcoding, but something like that is like super CPU intensive, intensive, right? Yep. So, yep. A lot of CPU and they, we sort of have to scale all those individual services up and down 
separately from the rest of the of the infrastructure right so um you know we 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 need to sort of so that that it it becomes very useful to kind of be able to just scale each of those services independently and be able to put things onto kafka queues that are that you know that are reliable and then if something fails it can be retried and you know things like that so you mentioned that you have about 15 different microservices encompassing you know all of the different video processing and things like that Mm-hmm. Uh, how did things start off initially when you created, well, I guess you didn't create Mux four years ago, but I mean, did this start out as like a multi-service thing or was it one service that kind of grew out over time? Yeah, I think the the video infrastructure team, to I, 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 to my knowledge, they, they sort of always kind of approach this. Folks we have working on the video infrastructure, like they're very experienced when it comes to video processing and things like that. So the Elixir app, like from day one, the Elixir app was never going to be sort of like, you know, handling the video, the video processing, it was always going to be kind of, we're going to need to pass this off to another service to, to, to do that piece of the, of the work. Okay. So now you have all these different APIs talking to each other. I mean, usually this is where I segue into a question like, are you using server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript or is an, or is it an API backend? But we know the answer to that API backend. Yep. Uh, is this API backend like a RESTful API or you're using GraphQL or something else? It's RESTful, yeah. No GraphQL. We haven't we haven't jumped onto the, the GraphQL, you know, train yet. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I don't know if you're going to know this off the top of your head, but do you know like roughly how many like RESTful API endpoints do you have? That's a part of your API. Oh, good question. Ooh, I'm completely shooting in the dark. I'm going to say 40 or 50. I could be off. Okay. Of those 40 or 50, are those then all public API endpoints that end users can hit? Yeah. The majority of them are just, you know, pub- publicly available APIs that anyone who's using our, anyone who's a customer can can hit. Yeah. Right. Now, speaking of APIs, and we mentioned Stripe before, how they built their dashboard with their API. I think unless things changed, I'm pretty sure they do have a couple of like, they're using a couple of private API features to render their dashboard. Is your dashboard like that? Or is it like fully exclusively over the public API? No, the dashboard does have some, there are some internal endpoints that we hit to, to do to do certain things. So yeah, but we, we try to keep that to a minimum. We try to, we try to use the, the publicly available APIs for, for the most part. Right. So when it comes to things like authenticating a user over your API, how do you have that set up? Yeah, that uh, that's with a, a cookie. So it's like cookie login and then the, the cookies used to authenticate you when you're in the dashboard. So you can do authentication with with a cookie or, you know, with API API key and AP and secret t- t- token. So you can you can authenticate both ways. When you're logged into the dashboard, we use a cookie, you know, but we're hitting the same API endpoints that that you can hit if you're, you know, authenticating with the uh, access token. Now, speaking about maybe other dependencies you might have in your application, uh, if you happen to know this offhand, like, do you know of any other packages that you use that might be of interest? Yeah, I know we use we use EXQ for a lot of the the background work, the more like transactional things on the Elixir side, like sending sending webhooks, um, you know, doing stuff like sending emails and things like that. We, EXQ and that that's worked pretty well for us. For I believe Mint is a is a HTTP library that we're using. And sorry to interrupt there, but for the queue one, yeah, what does it use as a backend to manage the state of that queue? Redis. Okay. So did you look into maybe some other alternative tools to use for that before you reach for that one? Because I know like a lot of people say like, well, if you're going to use Elixir, one of the great vantage points or whatever is that you know you don't need to spin up something like like Sidekick, like if you were working with Ruby on Rails. But it does seem like for a lot of production ready uh, applications, you do need 
things that are just like very, very hard to build yourself. So you do end up reaching for tools like this. Yeah, I believe that EXQ processes kind of just run alongside the web processes. So it's not like a separate pool of, it's not like a kind of separate pool of servers that we manage. And, and so I, I believe that's how, that's, how, that's how it works today. Oh, so that's actually, yeah, that's really cool. I didn't know about that because I, I never used that library. So you're not spinning up a dedicated like worker service per se. Right, right. Does that just become, I guess, like uh, something you just throw into, what's the term for Elixir? Help me out here. Like the application something something in application.ex? Oh, like supervisor? The supervisor. I believe so. Yes. Okay, cool. So anything else in that mix file that could be interesting to talk about? Uh, Prometheus. I'm going to use Prometheus to get, a, to, get, to get a bunch of metrics and then... So that that kind of leads into a bunch of the dash the dashboards that we have for monitoring. Okay, so that that's what, that would be dashboards that end users would see in their browser if they're looking through your dashboard. Oh no, sorry, that's that's for like our dashboards for for monitoring like you know uh, res response times and you know how many jobs we're processing and things like that. So we that gives us that we look at in Grafana. Okay, so actually normally we would talk about this a little bit later, but it makes sense to talk about it now. Uh, are you using anything like Elixir telemetry to like push those events to Prometheus or no? Oh, good question. We are. I don't believe we are yet, but that's something we've been we've been looking at and we've been wanting to make use of that because that that looks pretty cool. Yeah. No, I really love the idea, and this kind of goes back to like the Elixir ecosystem. Like testing is awesome. Like Phoenix is awesome, and now like telemetry is awesome. Like yeah, it just makes it so pleasant to develop applications. Yeah, exactly. That's what we like about it. Yep. So you mentioned uh, you do use Redis as a backend for the the queue library that you use. Mm -hmm. uh, do you want to maybe get into other things that you might have that's a part of your tech stack? Like what primary database do you use? And maybe if you're using Docker or not, Nginx and whatever else maybe? Yeah, for sure. So every every piece of our production in infrastructure is managed with Kubernetes. So, and you know, so it's Docker containers and Kubernetes we use. And the way we kind of deploy everything is with BuildKite. Are you familiar with, are you familiar with BuildKite? Uh, actually, no. Do you want to give us the, the heads up on that one? Yeah, build, BuildKite's pretty cool. It's like a CD, CI, CD service. And the thing that makes it different compared to ones you might be familiar with, like you might be more familiar with something like Circle or Circle CI or Travis. And what's in, what's cool about BuildKite is that BuildKite actually runs on your own Amazon infrastructure. So you, you kind of, you give a permission to kind of to kind of use your provision servers in your Amazon, in your Amazon account, and as a result of that, it can be like much, way you know way more cost effective than than like a full full blown kind of service, and it's really customizable. So you can write a lot of very customized script to kind of step by step, like you know, code gets pushed, new build gets pushed up, it hooks into GitHub, it lints the code or in, in, in Elixir, it runs mixed format, make, make sure the formatting's good. And then it runs the tests. And then you can, and then for example, we have like step two, you can kind of log into the BuildKite UI and you can kind of find your branch and then you can, you can click a button and unlock it to sort of deploy it to staging. And then it'll, it'll kind of deploy it to staging, or you can set it up so that we have the dashboard set up so that when it, every time it makes, builds a new version of the dashboard, it will it sort of it sort of creates a build, puts it on S3 or dashboard. We can just it's just kind of a static React app, so we can just kind of serve it straight from S3, and then it'll set up a a DNS record so that we have like a staging environment for each for each pull request that comes through on the dashboard client, things like that. So um, so we use BuildKite to kind of deploy and manage every everything across Mux, and you can just kind of write your own your own own scripting to tell it like kind of what to do 
to to handle everything and then and so you can tell it to like kind of build kite can just like publish new docker images and then you can and then in kubernetes when kubernetes is spinning up new new pods it'll you can kubernetes will pull down the latest docker images so build kite sort of our whole like ci cd pipeline that we use for everything wow you just uh unwinded about like four hours worth of discussions there, I think. <laughs> like lots of cool stuff. Yeah. So how do you actually get code into production then with so many different services running? Is this like full-blown CI CD or does someone actually like pull the trigger by hitting the red button? Yeah, so someone still has to pull the trigger in terms of like either merging code or cha- or changing a, a config in Kubernetes to point to a, a you know a new docker image that's you know that's that's kind of how it works so you know everything with everything with build kite is kind of hooked into you know github branches and everything like that so every time there's a new commit new code gets built new docker images get created and you know that yeah does that kind of answer your question yeah so i guess like from a developer's point of view they just push code to GitHub, mm-hmm. maybe in a feature branch, let's say, for, for one of these repos? Because I imagine, what, you probably have a lot of different repos for each service, I guess? Yeah, well, actually, the way the way we, we, we do it with a mono repo. So all the services are actually in one repo. Um, so that kind of makes things more sane from a developer perspective. Like, you don't have to be constantly switching between different repos and commits and everything. So we have... One repo for the dashboard API, so that's kind of the main Elixir Phoenix app. One repo for the you know the dashboard client, which is the React and the React TypeScript app, and then we have then we have the mono repo, and the mono repo is what kind of holds all the microservices. Oh, okay. So, like, let's say you're a developer working on maybe the dashboard backend or something, just to keep this uh, a more simple example. They would just make a feature branch, push it up to GitHub or whatever. Uh, BuildKite would kick in, run your CI, whatever it happens to be, right? Linting and test suite and everything is all good. Yep. Then what? I mean, you'd probably tag that to be reviewed by a couple of people. And then someone with permissions would uh, merge that into, I guess, like a master branch or some other branch. Yeah, the way we've run things is there's no there's no like one person where it's like, oh, this is the only person that's allowed to merge to master. We kind of have a lot of trust among the team where it's like, yeah, you're definitely expected to get a review. So you have to just kind of request a review from whoever you think on the team is most relevant to review your work, they stamp it. When they stamp it, then kind of you're responsible for getting it merged. So as soon as, soon as it's approved, you hit the merge button. And when you merge that into master, then that is going to, BuildKite's going to k- kick off a new uh, a new process. It's going to, it's going to you know, p- pull down the latest master, build it, and then push it, and then push it out to production. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting because... You know, I do a lot of freelance work and I talk to so many different folks and that's always something that comes up for discussion. It's like, well, at what point do you like not trust your developers to deploy something to production? Like it always needs some type of code review. Yeah, code review for sure. So it's, yeah, definitely code review. Um, I think that's just kind of a normal, no no matter how experienced you are, I feel like you always, it's not really a matter of experience. Like you always kind of want a second pair of eyes to at least just look over, look over things. And you, you know, you probably know that. Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of work for like my own side projects. And one of the worst parts about that is there's really no second eyes. And even with, you know, a million years of experience, which I don't have, but if I did, I'd still want someone else to look at yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's not, it's not like a strict, only this person's allowed to be the, be the ultimate reviewer. It's like you, you can get a review from anyone, anyone else on the team. And then, you know, once they stamp it, then, then you, then you then you're free to merge it. Right. So it sounds like everyone, every developer who has at least commit access is capable of making that merge into production. Yep, exactly. 
Okay. So I guess maybe now just rewinding a little bit back to the tech stack question, you know, you are using Kubernetes and we have Redis and we have Go and Elixir and Phoenix. Are you using, like, what's your primary database? Yeah, so our Elixir app has um, a couple different databases. So we have like kind of the main, you know, users database that saves all the kind of normal kind of user users and, you know, organizations and stuff like that. And then we, we have a an, another um, billing database that's kind of sits, sits also Postgres, it sits kind of separate. And that just saves, and that saves everything, um, you know, related to billing data. Because we, the way much billing works is that we bill like per minute of video that you ingest. So if you send a video, a MP4 video to our API, we'll, we'll you know, based on how many minutes of how long that video is, we, we bill based on that. So it's sort of like a easy pay as you go meter based billing then we also um, have a factor on how many minutes delivered and that's where it can kind of get kind of crazy when it comes to tracking that because when we actually deliver video to your end users that are coming to your app or coming to your website and streaming your video we need to like pull the cdn logs and see how many minutes of video we delivered to your users and then calculate billing based on that so sort of like a so that so that's kind of one reason why the billing billing database is kind of its own its own thing sits so kind of separate, and there's a, there's kind of a lot of work that goes into this kind of managing that billing system. Um, so that's the main. And then um, when I talked about Mux Data, where we're doing you know billions of views every month, um, that's sort of an interesting story. And we just put out a blog post about about that, where what we were using was. Uh, Postgres database managed by Citus. Are you familiar with Citus? Nope. Cool. It's like a TLDR. It's like a managed Postgres service for like really, really high scale Postgres deployments when you need when you when you're dealing with lots of lots and lots of data. So that's what we were using for you know all these video views that were coming in that we're tracking you know billions of views per month, and we recently just transitioned that to a database called ClickHouse. Have you ever heard of ClickHouse? Uh, I have not. I'm hearing about a lot of new stuff. Yeah, there. so ClickHouse, it's it's kind of low key, and we read about it. Um, I think it might have first come to our attention. We read about Cloudflare was using ClickHouse for for some stuff they were doing, and it is. And so now we have this full kind of ClickHouse database that's been that's been really um, kind of amazing for our data product. Where the main difference between a database like ClickHouse and a database like Postgres is ClickHouse is a columnar data store, so are if you think of like a video view um the the things we track on a video view is like you know what device they're on the end user of, of most data can pass in any kind of metadata like the title of that video um you know we, we try to detect, detect what cdn it's using all kinds of things like that and then how long the video took to start up how much rebuffering happened during that view and and all these metrics. Ultimately, if you're going to imagine it in a database, it's kind of one row that has 200 columns. So that's a lot of columns to put into kind of a, po a Postgres table. And when you want to query it, you know, let's say you want to see the rebuffering percentage, and that's like one column in this in this really really wide database, and you want to see the rebuffering percentage um, for the from the last uh, 30 days. 30 days is going to be, you know, it could be millions of millions of rows and you just want that one column that's out of millions of rows. Now, if you're going to do that in Postgres, Postgres is going to have to 
is going to have to grab all those rows and all the columns for all those rows when it, when it does that query. And in ClickHouse, ClickHouse can actually just query that column, and it actually compresses. And the way, the way it kind of compresses and stores the data is, is, is able to be much more efficient um, because the, the kind of cardinality when you get into a column is, like, is much lower. So um, I'm not like a database expert, but as a result of moving, moving all that stuff to ClickHouse and kind of redoing our queries, and ClickHouse kind of has like kind of a SQL-like query, uh, query syntax as you, you query it with SQL and it stores everything in, in columns, then um, we're able to like dress, like improve our query times across lar large, large data sets um, by, you know, a factor of uh, one or two orders of magnitude. Yeah, that, that is a huge, huge difference. Because, yeah, once you start ta talking about like 200 columns and, you know, millions and millions of rows, it's like, well, what are you going to do with Postgres? Are you going to put an index on every column that you want to filter on? Like, right. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that, that's what we, that's what we were running into. And the yeah so we were able to actually like migrate all that infrastructure over to clickhouse in the last uh kind of starting in january is when we started started migrating it and we just got that all done a couple months ago wow really nice yeah i'll make sure to link to that uh, blog post now when it comes to using that you said you kind of write similar to sql queries or is it actually like fully compatible with sql it, it's sql yeah it, it's sql yeah the, the queries you write is sql that you'd recognize Wow. So uh, does that mean, does it work with Ecto then too or no? It does not work with Ecto. I think in theory there could be an Ecto adapter, but it, it, it I don't think anyone's built that. Right. Maybe that's something uh, you guys can contribute to the community one day. Yeah, that's something that's something we can look at. Yeah. So I guess right now you just write raw SQL into it using some Elixir library you wrote to like bind to that database or no? Yes, we have. Yeah, the, the API side um, query, queries a ClickHouse database. It just kind of constructs it, we have, you know, just modules that construct the that construct the raw SQL queries. Okay, so we have ClickHouse, Postgres, Redis, using Kubernetes, Docker, Elixir, Phoenix, Go. I think that's everything you mentioned so far. Anything else? Because your tech stack is growing pretty fast. <laughs> that's a that's a good that's a good summary, I would say. Okay, was there like nginx in front of the web servers for Phoenix or no? We use the Amazon's load balancer, so our API runs on Amazon, and we, yeah, we use Amazon's load balancer in front of everything, and I think that's it. Okay, and I guess that load balancer totally handles things like SSL certs for you and things like that. Yep. Yep. Okay, so you mentioned Amazon S3 load balancer is all of your infrastructure on AWS then. Yes, and uh, where it's fun is our whole all the microservices that I described, like the Go microservice, those are all running, and the video infrastructure, that's all on Google Google Cloud. Interesting. So what made you guys choose that one over AWS? I, I don't know the exact exact reasons. I can kind of guess pricing might have been a factor and just kind of Teams experience with, uh, with a lot of Google's infrastructure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess with the scale that you're dealing at, uh, experience makes a heck of a lot of difference. Yep. Yeah, I know. I know the answer to this one is probably no, but there's no chance uh, we can talk about how many servers you run on these platforms, or maybe you can. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know the numbers around that. Like, I mean, everything's kind of scaled dynamically with Kubernetes, so you know, with with pods and nodes. So the actual individual kind of servers are sort of abstracted from our infrastructure. Um, so I don't really know the the answer to that. Right. I mean, like ballpark rough estimate, like. Hundreds of containers are running, I guess, or no? I'm, I, tough to, it would be tough, tough to say. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah, I guess we can leave it at that. I mean, 
you're, you're dealing with billions of things happening per month. Like needless to say, it's a complex architecture. There's probably lots of things running. Yeah, yeah. So are there any other AWS services that you use that uh, we can talk about maybe? Besides like S3 and the load balancer, and I guess, what are you using EKS or managed Kubernetes or no? No, we're not. No, we're not using uh, Amazon's managed Kubernetes. No, I th that, that's all we use from Amazon. Okay, cool. So you mentioned before that you have this elaborate billing style. Uh, do you use Stripe to handle all of that? We do. And the thing is, well, we use Stripe to just, you know, do the transactions. Um, we sort of built this whole system before Stripe introduced their sort of newer, their newer tools that they have. Are you familiar with their newer tools that they have around line items and quantities and kind of metered billing? They, 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 they released a bunch of features around this. And at the time that we implemented the billing for Mux, that didn't exist. So sort of had to kind of roll our own when it comes to that. Um, so, you know, if we're going to do it today. Maybe we'll lean on Stripe's tooling for that. But we, yeah, you know, we definitely use Stripe to just kind of run the credit cards and do that, that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not too familiar with using the metered billing APIs uh, firsthand, but I do remember reading about them in the docs. It seemed like a very useful feature, especially for something like what you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think in the, in the example in Stripe stocks, they had a lot of examples of for bandwidth, you know, and, you know, a lot of video companies bill based on bandwidth. Um, we kind of went with a minute based billing because it just seems so much simpler to us. You know, if, if you, you know, you said you create video courses, if you're going to put up, you know, let's say, let's say you make 10 new courses and you're going to put them on your website and you're going to allow users to access them. If I was going to ask you like, Hey Nick, how much, how much bandwidth are you going to use next month for your courses? It's probably difficult to answer, but yeah, no idea. Uh, you you might have a better idea of how many minutes people would watch, right? You might you might be able to estimate like, oh, okay, you know, this many people come if they watch like thirty minutes or so. That you, probably easier to get a ballpark number of minutes. So we we find that minutes is a much more kind of user friendly way to to do billing. Yeah, that makes sense. And plus, like. Yeah, with the bandwidth, it's so super dependent on who's watching the videos. Like if they're streaming it with a bad connection with 480p versus someone who is maybe watching it at 4K, the bandwidth requirements of that are going to be way, way different. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess piggybacking off the other question about Stripe, um, do you want to maybe go into like some other SaaS tools that you might use to power your site? Like which transactional email service do you use or anything else? Yeah, yeah. We use SendGrid for transactional emails. We use Sentry for like error monitoring and reporting, uh, you know, for alerts like that. For for like paging for on-call on engineers, we use Ops Genie. I'm trying to think of other ones, you know, heavy users of Slack and stuff like that. Kind of more on the, not not exactly in the the tools that, that are integrated into our tech stack, but in terms of what we use with the company. And trying to think of any other ones. Those are the ones that come to mind. Right. So do you have anything hooked up with your CI service to where things get sent to a Slack channel, like on a successful or an error deploy? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we have alerts like that. So if builds are failing and when, you know, when when alerts are triggering from OpsGenie, those those all go to the get routed to the appropriate Slack channels. Right. So you mentioned some form of pager duty going on. When was the last time that you got called upon for uh something going wrong at like 1 a.m. Oh, I'm not on I'm not on the on-call team. <laughs> I'm not other that's the ops team. I I, I don't uh, I'm not part of that, so yeah, lucky me. Right. So, what did you mention earlier on in this call? You had 40 50 employees about half are technical like doing some type of development. Then do you have uh separate developers from your ops team then? There's dedicated people in each area? 
Yeah, yeah. So the way the team's roughly broken out, and uh, there's there's kind of there's there's a lot of like cross functional you know work that goes on. But the way that kind of roughly way we think about it is like there's the video team, and that works on you know Mux Video, which is the whole video processing pipeline, everything like that. There's the data team, which works on you know collecting the billions of views a month and saving them in databases and making them queryable and handling that whole pipeline. And then we have kind of the, the dashboard team and the dashboard team is what kind of works on um, keeping the API up, um, you know, building new features for the API, things like that. And the dashboard client, which is the, which is the, you know, the logged in, you know, React app. So, so it's kind of like video, video team, data team, dashboard team. And then there's one more team, which is like the SDK team. And there's kind of like two flavors of SDKs that we have. We have, kind of the normal SDKs that every API company has, which is, you know, wrappers around our REST endpoints, right? So we have a Node, Elixir, Go, PHP, Python. I might be forgetting one. So, you know, those are just like simple wrappers around the REST API. Um, that's kind of what every every API company has those. But then we have to maintain a whole a whole other set of SDKs, which are SDKs that plug into commonly used video players. Oh boy. Yeah, so I mentioned before that the way the the data product works is it monitors your playback and you know you imagine you're a video infrastructure team and you're serving all this video to your to your to your end users and you have an iOS app that where your videos are playing, you have a web web application where your videos are playing. You have maybe Apple TV or whatever it may be. Your, your videos are playing on all these platforms and you use Mux data in order to monitor how that user's experience is going. So in order to achieve that, um, Mux uh, has to give you SDKs for all those players. So, and we have, you know, a lot of data customers and they're all using different players. So that means we need to maintain SDKs for you know, for for all all the commonly used players, and you know, occasionally we'll get we'll get a customer coming on board where they're using some obscure player, and then we need to kind of build another SDK for for that player. And um, we've do, we've done a we've done I think we've done a great job of kind of streamlining the sort of the sort of how we kind of manage that in all. And I knew this was going to come up, so I counted for you, Nick. Where we have a uh, twenty two SDKs that we that we maintain. Some some are web, some are for you know like Samsung TV, Roku, Chromecast. Some are for iOS, and some are for Android. And the way the way we kind of go about this is we have like a Mux Core library that, and we have one Mux Core library for each language. So we have one Mux Core library in JavaScript. We have one Mux Core library in Objective C. And we have one Mux Core library in Java. And the Mux Core library is kind of like where all the really kind of complex um, logic happens when it comes to tracking uh, a viewer that's watching a video. So if you imagine you load a video and you push play, right? And what we need to do is we need to see how long did it take from when you attempted to play the video to when you actually saw the first frame and then... We need to keep track of uh, if you if you pause at any time, if you started seeking in the timeline at any time, 
if you know if you hit the full screen button if, if you went full screen so all of these things tie in to your actual experience viewing the video and probably most importantly if it if it started rebuffering so probably like the two most important is like startup time which is the time from when you attempted play to when it actually started playing and then the second most important is probably rebuffering which means for however long you're watching the video, what percentage of that time was the video rebuffering? If if you hit play and it played straight through without rebuffering at all, that's a that's a that's a perfect you know, zero percent rebuffering percentage, which is perfect, right? Normally, you know, you'll experience a little rebuffering and depending on different factors. Um, so we need to track all that. And the way the way we've we've set this up is sort of um, an event based system into the Mux Core library. So um, there's a Mux Core library, right, in every in every every language. So the objective, for example, like the Objective C Mux Core library is set up in a way where it can just receive events. It'll say, okay, play playing the play the t the playhead has been updated, um, seeking has started, and then and 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 it can always kind of it gets events and it kind of keeps track of the state of the player and. On a continuous, continual basis, it's constantly keeping track of the state of the player, collecting events, and then sending requests to Mux's data backend. That's kind of going on on an ongoing basis. So those are the three kind of core libraries that we maintain, one for each language. And then for each specific player, the API is a little bit different. So, you know, in Java JavaScript world, some they might have different different event names for different callbacks or they might you know some apis might imp implement some players might implement one api and then not implement another so so then the the player specific api those are kind of a thin layer on top of the player that sort of takes the api that the player makes available and then it sort of translates that into the events that mux core expects and then just Kind of dispatches those events into Mux Core, and then Mux Core kind of keeps track of that whole state and makes the request to the backend. So um, that's how we've been able to manage it, where you know all the real kind of hard logic is going on in Mux Core, and then the player-specific SDK is just kind of a, a thin layer, and that that's just responsible for translating um, from the APIs that the players makes available into the kind of events that Mux Core expects. Right, that makes sense. And I guess like what I'm visualizing here would be like if you were to support multiple payment gateways in an application, you might have like the primary gateway API, and then you'd have an implementation for Stripe and maybe an implementation for PayPal or something like that. And like that goes back to like what your players are sort of, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you can think of it like that. Yeah. That is a crazy setup because like that's something you don't really think about as a developer. Like you mentioned, you have one team handling all of these different SDKs. So I would imagine the folks on that team, they must be very, very well-rounded, like capable of being, you know, a Python developer, a Ruby developer, an Elixir developer, a JavaScript developer. Like, yeah, there's so many things to keep uh, tabs on. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. You definitely have to work across a lot of the different the different languages and different different technologies. Um, and, you know, so yeah, that, that's that's kind of how it goes. And the, the other thing I'll, I'll mention um, was just kind of a, Kind of a, another key metric that we track, and this kind of just kind of demonstrates of the sort of data that 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 Mux data is able to track that that becomes useful useful for you to know if your users are having a good viewing experience, and that's what we call like 
um, upscale or downscale percentage. So if you imagine a player and let's say the player let's say the player is on the web and it's it's rendered into um, you know a, a div that's you know 600 pixels wide and you know 400 pixels high, right? And now let's say you get a video source. The source for the video that you're showing in that player is is smaller than that. Then what the player is going to have to do is it's going to have to upscale that source into the larger container. So so we look at the the dimensions of the source video and the dimensions of the player, and then we calculate if you're if you're upscaling that. So if if you have to if you have a high upscale percentage, then that means you're delivering video that's too small for the player that you're showing it in, right? And if you have a downscale percentage, and that means like the video source you're serving is too big for the player that you're showing it in. Now, big's not necessarily bad because it'll still look good, but you're wasting bandwidth there. So these are the sort of like metrics that you kind of, that, that these, these SDKs are able to track and inform your sort of video team of how well you're operating your video infrastructure. Yeah, that's some like next level stuff that as someone like me who maybe, you know, I'm creating a course platform to stream videos, you know, I'm not even thinking at that level. I'm thinking of like, well, how long did this guy or girl watch this video for? Like, is it 30% of the video or 99% or 100% or when did they stop it? Things like that. Yeah, so that's what you're getting into what we call engagement metrics. So that's getting into things where you want to know, like, out of all the videos in my library, like, what's the most popular or what are the most popular segments of this particular video? And the way Mux works is you can look at like the individual views. So you can like literally click on a view in your dashboard and you could just see, oh, they started playing, they pushed pause, they seeked to this timestamp, they went back to another timestamp, they hit play again and then it rebuffered and you can kind of see that whole timeline. Um, but the way the data product is today, at least, is very much focused on that like quality of service, not not necessarily around those engagement metrics, more about quality of service, like how good of an experience are your end users having? Um, so that's why I compare it more to like, you know, a tool like New Relic that shows like, you know, how healthy is your infrastructure, things like that. Yeah, no, that's awesome because that's the foundation of everything. Like those engagement metrics, since you log it all in like an audit trail, you can always pick those out later. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I can't imagine like, man, the amount of data you, you guys must store. Uh, are we dealing with like tens of terabytes or more or you don't know? Oh, man. Good question. I don't know. I should find out. Um, we The thing is, we only keep views around for at most for 90 days. So it kind of depends on the customer, um, depends on what plan you're on. But at most, we only keep views around for 90 days. So, you know, that allows us to, to get rid of a lot of old stuff. We're not keeping things around forever. So that helps. Um but yeah, I don't know how in terms of terabytes how much it is, but it's it's definitely a lot. Yeah, for sure. Now, a while back, a couple of minutes ago, I, I lost track at this point. You mentioned something about, you know, keeping things running like API uptime. I guess the first question would be, how many times do you deploy these services per day on average, roughly? Oh, yeah, we, we kind of have like a constant de deployment process, at least on the API side. Um, I think... The video team has a little bit more structure around like when they determine that they're they're deploying things. Um, yeah, you know everything. You know on the on the API side, you know we have to make sure no downtime deploys things like that. If if we have to run migrations, it's always a two you know two or three step process where it's like you know you need to write your code in a way that works with you know the old schema and the new schema. Run the migration, 
you know, so it's kind of have to like a multi-phase release process. So that that's something we always have to kind of consider. And I don't I don't know how you can kind of get around get around that when you need to maintain an API that's open to the public. Yeah, there's really I don't think there is a way around that one. But have you ever gotten yourself into a situation where you needed to run a migration that just is, that takes a long time? Like, did you end up having to pull the API down or put it into like a maintenance mode or anything like that? Not, not since I've been here. Um, we did at one time. I think we need we needed to upgrade something, and we had a brief time where the API was like read only. And I I forget exactly what we were doing in that case, but yeah. So we have had to go into read only mode in order to do these do these migration do do some some things around migrations um but that that's that's really rare so i guess on the topic of maybe like uptime and disaster recovery and stuff like that uh like what does your database backup plan look like yeah um no i don't dang it i don't know the answer to that right so maybe maybe you just no backups at all and just live once hope it works <laughs> no we definitely have backups <laughs> we definitely have backups i i don't know exactly how it's instrumented but we definitely have backups so I, maybe this is a little bit too low level for what your platform provides, but like, I mean, you did mention users upload things like captions, but do they also upload things like thumbnails as well or no? Oh, yeah. So another feature of Mux, Mux Video is that we'll do, uh, when you put a video onto Mux Video, we can generate thumbnails for you at any timestamp. So all you need to do is just a separate, um, just a separate URL where you can just request thumbnails from any timestamp in the video you can even get gifs um you know animated gifs from any timestamp in the video so that's kind of a, a service we provide nice so is there also maybe a way i know this is very popular in something like youtube but like uploading a custom thumbnail that might not be at a specific time point no I, i'm not sure is there like a kind of purpose you're thinking of of upload for uploading thumbnail uh, I mean, like if you're creating, let's say, something like a YouTube platform where you have a cate- like a, a gallery of videos that are presented to a user, usually a thumbnail, I guess, like what is its main focus is kind of grab your attention as a user. Sometimes you might want to put in like, I don't know, a certain title or superimpose your head over the video or something like that, like that might not exist in the video itself. Right, right. So you you would control that on the player side. So if you're using Mux for the video, when you set up your player in your, you know, in your web app, you can just set up the thumbnail that you want to use for for that video. So you you can choose to kind of like pull a thumbnail out of the video with the APIs we provide or you can you you can, you know, on when you're rendering the player, you can just kind of show your own thumbnail if you want to do that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Like out of scope for what you guys do cuz it's a client problem, but something like captions is sort of important for the player to know about that. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we if you get captions generated, and there, there's a bunch of APIs where you can just kind of send a video and get automatically generated captions or human generated captions, and you know maybe that's something that will that Mux will provide in the future. But right now, you know, it's kind of on you to get the captions generated, and they come in this in a standard uh, format, a VTT file, and you can just post that VTT file to Mux's API, attach it to your video. And then what Mux does is it'll actually just process that file and it'll it'll include the the those captions in each segment of the video that gets sent to the to the player. So then the player will then see the captions in the video and then you know most most players have a way to just kind of detect if captions are included in the video that's being sent and then you know show a little UI to you know show or hide the captions. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool stuff. I just started getting into that with my uh, platform right now. Where I want to show even one step further and show kind of like a like a scrollable transcript of the captions on the side of the video. 
I mean, that's out of scope for what you guys would do, but yeah. There's definitely a way to do that, you know, because all that captioned information is included in each video segment that that's that's being downloaded by the player. So you can kind of build a plugin with the player that kind of works hand in hand. Yeah, so it's almost just like presenting what you already have as captions, but in a different div on the screen. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so I, I guess rewinding back to things like disaster recovery, you mentioned not sure on the database backup plan, but do you know like what you do for user uploads then? Like those uh, VTTs, like the caption files, do you have those backed up on a regular basis? Yeah, yeah. So when, when um, you know, because typically what happens is a user like gives us a URL to a, you know, VTT file. So then we'll download that URL, keep it for some amount of time. And, you know, sometimes they're giving us URLs that are, you know, signed that ha that ex that will expire at some point. And it'll be like a signed, you know, you know, you can have like a signed S3 URL, something along those lines. So so we'll, we'll download that file, keep it for, for some amount of time, process it, because in, in case something along the, the, the line of processing it fails, we can still kind of go back and retry it. So also on the topic of uh, unexpected events and things like that, do you have any like alarm set up to where if things go sour, people get notified very quickly? Uh, I guess you kind of did hint at using a PagerDuty service for that, but do you want to maybe go into like other services maybe or lower level alarms? Yeah, so we use, yeah, everything kind of flows up. There's a couple things. So everything kind of flows up to OpsGenie, and OpsGenie does kind of the paging and manages like the on-call rotation, everything like that. And what, there's some various things that can trigger that. Like we we run, we run things like, you know, every 15 minutes, we post a video to the API, make sure it's ingested, make sure we can play, back, play it back. And if not, it's going to alert somebody. So that's kind of like integration, kind of like end-to-end -end integration test that's that's constantly running to make sure that that's just kind of like a smoke test of okay is, is something is something crazy really wrong but ideally that would kind of not come into play because we would be alerted before that because like you know servers or memories getting crazy on servers or running out of disk space or cpus cpu spiking like crazy like all of those kind of factors can trigger can trigger alerts and then i know we use something else called flink which is I'm not super familiar, but my understanding is that Flink will sort of, um, it constantly processes like a stream of information. So um, within our services, we're like constantly sending information to Flink and Flink will just kind of keep keep processing that stream of information. And then if something kind of changes or something looks abnormal, then it'll sort of trigger an alert. And I, so I know part of our system works with, with, that, with that. Huh, seems interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out. Very cool. So you guys are pretty well-rounded in terms of, you know, keeping tabs on making sure things are working on a regular basis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, customers are not going to be happy if their videos are not playing back. So it's, a, it's really important. Yeah. And I would imagine you guys have some, I know you can't really mention them, but pretty big clients where, you know, downtime really just is not an option almost, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So I, I guess the last question related to this one would be, do you do anything special to deal with like denial of service attacks or like throttling clients to make sure nothing goes really to a, a stray? Yeah. I mean, we do, we do rate limiting on our API. So we do, and the Elixir, the Elixir that gets handled at the Elixir level of, you know, based on the organization or the API key, well, we, you know, we have, we have rate limiting. So that, that, that all works well. We haven't had, we haven't had too many problems around that, and you know when you when you have to maintain a public API, you're you're always risking that 
someone is going to write a script that's just going to be stuck in a loop that's constantly hammering your API. Like that's something that we we can't control. So we need to kind of protect against that. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I'm developing any app, that's basically in the back of my mind always like, you know, the user is out to attack me, even though maybe they're not, but you kind of have to develop defensively as if they are. Yep. Yep. What about like rate limiting when it comes to, I guess, like video playback or is that like basically impossible to be a problem? Yeah, that's all like at the CDN level. So, um, you know, we're built so that our video playback can just like scale. Like if you're going to have a bunch of people watching your videos, um, you know, that's that should that, you know, in quotes, just work, you know, um, and that's all, you know, all those video segments and manifest files and everything are going to be served by by our CDN partners. And, you know, so so that's not going to be impacting, you know, the public API or things like that. Right. So when you say CDN partners, you have more than one CDN. Yeah, we use um, Fastly and StackPath. Um, those are the two CDNs we use right now. And we employ a kind of um, multi, it's like called multi CDN. So um, we have a service that we use that kind of keeps track of how those CDNs are performing, like in real time, and it'll actually switch between them. So if one CDN is having an issue in one region, you know, one point of presence is, you know, having a bad time then it'll start rerouting requests to to a different cdn so yeah so that we're not like completely dependent on just you know a single cdn and if they have an issue then we're just kind of totally host right like yeah that's a lot of uh things to account for to make sure that you remain up because most people are not operating on a level where you know we're almost like load balancing cdns right exactly exactly i guess the only uh problem here is maybe dns right it's everyone's problem yep yeah. <laughs> so actually, I guess speaking about DNS, uh, you mentioned mostly using AWS, but also Google Cloud. Do you do like multi-regional uh, load balancing or anything like that? We do somewhat. So like for um, another part of our service that we use is uh, a, a, another API that we provide. Have you ever done live streaming to something like Twitch or something like a YouTube live or things like that? Yep. I've used Twitch before. Cool. So you're familiar with like RTMP. So did you when you did that, did you use like OBS or some other software on your computer? Yeah, I used OBS. Perfect. Yeah. So the most common is OBS. And for folks that aren't familiar, what OBS is, it's a it's an encoder. So you run that software on your, you know, on your laptop, on your computer, and you can um, stream video from your computer to what's called an RTMP server. And um, when you when you went about Nick when you were streaming to Twitch, what you had to do is go into Twitch, copy and paste the RTMP server URLs, and like you know paste that into into OBS or something something along those lines. Um, so what another API that Mux has is a live streaming API. So if you wanted to build a Twitch or you wanted to build a YouTube, what you can do is you can make a single API request, and what we'll do is we'll give you a live stream and we'll give you RTMP credentials, right? So you, so you'll have RTMP, RTMPS colon slash slash global live dot com, some URL like that and a stream key. And so if you're building Twitch, you know, you make a request to Mux, you get back the RTMP credentials, you give those credentials to your user and then your user goes and enters those into OBS and clicks start streaming. And what happens on Mux's side is Mux is going to receive that RTMP stream through our live 
live streaming API. And then you can do the, the playback of that live stream the same way that we talked about with HLS, where you just drop the, the, the playback URL into a player. So live streams playback over HLS, um, video on demand all plays back over HLS. So the, the playback is actually the, the exact same whether you're doing live or video on demand. Um, Mux has that API to, to give you an RTMP server so that you could build a product that has live streaming in it. And um, the reason I got to that question is the way that service service works is it the 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 RTMP URL that you put into OBS is like globally distributed. So it's going to ingest your media from like the closest, um, you know, really it's, we do it through Google cloud. So it's going to ingest your media like th- from the closest Google point of presence to where you, to where your end user is. Um, so yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And and that's an amazing feature. I didn't even think was possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty neat. And, um, it's pretty, I've kind of a background in live streaming before I got to Mux, I was working on a live, live streaming product called uh, crowdcast or, um, and so we we're dealing kind of a lot in this live streaming space and it's, and the, the live streaming product that Mux has is pretty, pretty cool. And if any, if anyone's doing like live streaming, projects um i definitely encourage you to check it out yeah i'm not doing that at the moment but if it ever comes up like yeah that's that's awesome to hear it's basically sounds like mux is like i i don't know what your slogan is but it's like whatever you're doing with video like mux does it basically (laughs) yeah it's pretty much like api to video is what we say people it's like you know api to video infrastructure i know earlier in the video you kind of mentioned that you know billions of events are, are going through the system i mean is all of that handled through a Phoenix and Elixir or no? That part is not. So yeah, so that part is not our public facing API. I can talk about a little bit about how that works. So, you know, the SDKs that I described, they're sending, they're constantly sending views, view data over to our, to our data, data API and, you know, public API, that's Elixir data API that's running somewhere else that's running on AWS. And those are like very lightweight kind of stateless Go servers that there's the, the main entry point, their, their sole purpose is to just, you know, collect those video video views, push them onto a Kafka queue, and then let them get handled by by something else. It's basically what they, they, they do a little bit, but that's, that's basically what they do. So we have all these Go servers that are, you know, stateless, they scale, they scale very easily, and they're running and they're, you know, collecting billions of, of, of requests um, every month. And then th- those, those get pushed onto a Kafka queue. And then we have um, other, an- another service that's, pull- that's pulling those things off, off the Kafka queue and, um, con- and constructing a single view. So a, a view, when you're, when you're watching a video, is like you push play and you watch it for a while and then you leave. That's a view, right? And a view is going to contain a lot of events, like play, pause, playheads updated, all these events. So all those events are getting sent to the API, shoved onto a Kafka queue. Another service is running, pulling pulling all those events down off the queue, and basically constructing a single view, um, a single view object that, that can then be written to the database. So um, so we kind of have this like really lightweight process that's just gonna just gonna collect the requests, and then other processes that are gonna run and basically like like roll those up into a single entity. Okay. So yeah, so like the low level, super high throughput stuff, Elixir maybe is not the best fit for that one. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it w- definitely don't need a whole, you know, Phoenix app. It's probably a bit bit too much overhead for that. Um, so, you know, the, the team working there likes Go. So they, you know, they chose to just do the simple Go web server. Right. And then for the, uh, like the dashboard API and things that are powered by Phoenix and Elixir, still de- de- still dealing with a, a decent amount of traffic? Yeah, so st- still quite a lot of, lot of traffic, not, not not nearly on the scale of, you know, billions of views that the data that the data products handling but yeah still still quite a lot of traffic and what we and we just released like a real-time api for that that the, that the elixir api handles so that that means we're starting to have customers that are kind of constantly querying that real-time api to get to get like real-time information that's that's up to date and and using that to kind of build their own dashboards and things like that so so we're starting to see a lot more requests on that product Oh, nice. Well, I, I guess we're throwing around terms like quite a bit, but that could be like ten thousand or ten million. Uh, what side of that scale are we on here? I, you know, I don't, I don't even know offhand. <laughs> okay, but pretty good amount of traffic, but, we'll say. Yeah, yeah. So I guess to wrap things up here, like, what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this application? Um, I guess one of the things more broadly is that you know, video video is hard specifically. Um, I kind of tell people I kind of. Because I kind of the way I kind of came into video was that I was just kind of had a lot of experience as just like a web software engineer, you know, building building different web based products, you know, APIs that are used by different different client apps and stuff like that. And I didn't really know anything about video, and it was kind of the it was just kind of a need where I was building like a you know a, a product that had video as a piece of it, and then video was kind of something I had to start learning about and kind of say that I started digging into it five years ago and didn't really didn't really expect it to be that complicated but I'm still digging and it's just getting in and video becomes more and more complicated um, and it's it's quite a hard problem to be dealing with so it's kind of been a really fun thing to work on at Mux. Yeah no listening to you talk about all of this like I'm almost jealous in a weird way in that the whole Mux platform itself like it has like a lifetime's worth of, of learning and things that you can, uh, you know, try to, try to get your hands dirty working with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's what makes it really exciting. There's a lot of different pieces of the Mux infrastructure and I only work on like kind of a small, a small part of it, but, um, it makes for a real, really interesting kind of product to be a part of. Yeah. The, the only thing I'm not jealous about is your SDK team. So like the amount of churn that must happen with the JavaScript, like video players is phenomenally high. I bet like every time they release a new version, you need to update your SDK stuff. Yep. Um, that, that's kind of mostly what I work on. So, yep. <laughs> and, uh, My condolences. Yeah. and then the, the thing is the, the good thing about that, all the different JavaScript players are mostly UI wrappers around the HTML5 video. Um, so we're able to hook into a lot of that like HTML5 video events. So we kind of like can kind of nor- normalize a lot of it. But yeah, play- video players do all kinds of weird stuff. They do all kinds of weird stuff yeah. that we have to deal with. Yeah, I guess it's not too bad then if the base of it is that HTML5 player. I thought it would have been a lot worse maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the base of it. All right. So Dylan, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Yeah, nice talking to you, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I think this may be the longest episode of all, but we covered a lot of great stuff. Awesome. Cool.
<laughs> so before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, we, you know, we love talking to developers. One of like the reason I love working at Mux is because, you know, I've been a developer, like a software engineer my whole career and being able to kind of build a product for developers is just like, it doesn't really get much cooler than that in my mind. Like my, my days are spent like talking to people that are, you know, that are like me, they're just building, building their products and, and, and building cool things. So, um, you know, I know your audience is all developers, so, you know, we're, we'd love to talk to you, especially if you're doing stuff, stuff with video. So yeah, you can email me Dylan, D Y L A N at mux.com. I'm on Twitter, Dylan, D Y L A N J H A. And, um, you can check out the blog. We do, we even have a lot of good articles on the blog. If you want to kind of learn more about mux is mux.com slash blog. Um, and yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. We're definitely, you know, hiring too. So if you're looking for, for next great place to work and you're a good developer and you want to work on developer products, then, um, reach out about that too. I'd love to love to chat. So thanks, Nick. Yeah, no problem. Awesome. And on that note to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the running in production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.